Welcome back to the Host Dispatch. In this episode, we are excited to share our roundtable discussion with the founder of Host Publications, Joe Bratcher, where we discuss the books we're reading in celebration of Women in Translation Month. Women in Translation Month was launched in 2014, a creation of literary blogger Maytal Radzinski as a response to her observation that only around 30% of books published in translation were by women. You can show your support by following the Women in Translation Twitter account and hashtag, which offer year-round recommendations of great new books by women authors from around the world, and by buying books by Women in Translation from your local bookstore. We hope you enjoy this conversation among friends, and from all of us at Host Publications, thanks for listening. Today, we are here to talk about one of our favorite months of the year, Women in Translation Month. It is finally here, and it is actually something that we celebrate year-round. As a press, we are obviously very invested in translated literature and definitely believe in bringing forth more representation for women's voices. I think so. You know, it's something that... uh... I've always tried to represent with the host publications titles and the uh, newly named backlist, which we call Host 88. You know, it's full of women who wrote brilliantly in other languages and are recognized in their native countries, but are relatively unknown here in the United States, if not completely unknown. So I love August. Even though it's 100 degrees outside, I can get (laughs) in the AC and read some good Women in Translation. I also just love Women in Translation Month as a way to honor, obviously, women writers from all over the world, but also are translators who are bringing these works to the United States into the English language um, that we otherwise would not have access to. Um, it can really revive writers who have kind of fallen out of the conversation and like resurface work that has since been lost. Yeah, it's incredible to think about all of the works in other languages out there that haven't been translated into English, there's tons and tons of of literature that just isn't available in English. So when someone translates something, it is now this precious gift that we receive. I think of uh, Yoko Tawada's book, The Emissary, um, which Margaret Mitsutani translated. And that won the uh, National Book Award for Translated Literature in 2018. Uh, but that book totally changed my life. It kind of changed my reading trajectory and what I was interested in. And I can't imagine having a bookshelf without it, um, except that you have it right now, Anar. <laughs> like, it is on my nightstand right now. Books, books should always be where they're being read. Well said, Joe. But... Yeah, some of these books that I've discovered just in the last few years, even, um, they're some of my favorite books of all time. And I know we've talked about it before, but just having the privilege of being able to um, 
peer into the mind and into the world of someone with a completely different life experience, you know, because of the country where they live in or the culture they grew up in, the language that they speak, or even just through the the passage of time, reading someone from a long, long time ago, it is such a, a miraculous occurrence. It's just, it's so fantastic that these works make their way into our brains in the first place. Um, it just feels like such a gift. There's an aura about literature that's in another language. It's uh, it's not just the culture. It's not just the place. It's, it's an entire way of being that uh, surrounds the literature and the world that's created by the words and it's it's really amazing and then when you take that and layer upon it the women in that world it's even more powerful and you know as a male reader i am uh, constantly astounded and uh, blown away by the worldview that i get from reading women's literature and then women in translation, it just doubles it all down. You know, it's something I really treasure. And, you know, as I like to say, as you said earlier, Claire, we celebrate women in translation all year round, but, you know, August is special. August always like breezes by too. It's like, you can't ever get enough women in translation squeezed into one month. So I'm really glad that we can do a podcast. Yeah, it's hard because you can't read that many books in the span of one month, especially if you're reading these lengthy novels like um, The Memory Police. That <laughs> is that Yoko Ogawa? Yes. It's so long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's like to me, August is just the time of year for people like us who have a passion for this to present that passion to the world and offer up some reading lists and suggestions if people are looking for a place to start uh, or just for a really good read. Because I think if you're interested in reading and you're interested in opening your mind up to other worlds, then taking that to the next level of reading translated literature and then also literature by women. So getting a really underrepresented voice, that's, that's the most mind expanding experience you can have as a reader. Well, you've mentioned Yoko Tawada, and she is just tremendous. She is tremendous. I totally agree. Uh, I uh, I went to the old Host 88 list because I love it. It's so dear to my heart. And I picked out a couple of titles that are by women who are from a country that you don't usually associate with Host, and that's Germany. And uh, I looked at Ursula Kretschel's Voices from the Bitter Core, and Bridget Cronauer's Women in Clothes. And those books just, oh, they knocked my socks off. And I, I remember reading them the first time and uh, just thinking how great they are. And I just really still think they resonate with everything and the world that's going on and the world views that everybody has. But that's what great literature does. And I think these both fall into that. I'm glad you brought those because they're two that I'm not super familiar with from our expansive back catalog. So I'm excited to hear more. Do you want to talk? Do you want to start talking about Voices from the Bitter Core first to maybe like read us a little section from it? Sure. Uh, Voices from the Bitter Core is by Ursula Kretschel. It was written around 2005 in German and 
Post Publications brought it out in about 2010. And uh, in the author's note, Ursula describes it as a radical portrait of the militant masculine condition. It is a long poem made up of 12 times 12 times 12 verses, as she says. It's 12 poetic sequences with 12 poems in each one, and each poem is 12 lines. And so it's very Inger Christensen there. And she really just rips apart the entire history of the masculine desire to make war all the time. And uh, as she says, why does the history of Western literature have to begin in the Iliad with a description of a shield? Say, why can't it be of a wound? Because that's what this has done to everybody. So it's a it's a long poem, and it's bilingual, and it you know it's. 320 pages bilingually, but uh, it's really, really amazing. And uh, I'll read just the first poem in the first sequence. Fact is, we did not begin the Peloponnesian War. Skirmish, all eggs in one basket, description of a shield. Certainly, the Peloponnesian War was not our cup of tea. And as Troy burned, we undeniably miles away. The war has been forced upon us by those who care, freely wanted to be our enemies at the end of the earth. Soil scorched, they arranged themselves, laid out bait, the shirt slid open, so that the bare breast, naked mercy mate, we have made sacrifices in order not to sacrifice ourselves haplessly. As the victim of our future enemies who formed up too late and penetrate into lawless regions in classified text collectives, want to be described, sung about, so that we can be silent. And that's the start. That's a start. And it goes on for another three, you know, 150, 175 pages. This is awesome. This is awesome poetry. And Ursula Kretschel is a highly, highly recognized poet in Germany and tragically has not been translated into English except for this edition of Voices from the Bitter Core. It sounds almost like an epic. Yeah. Poem. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. And it references, you know, the the sort of classical mythologies. It um it brings to mind you know, in terms of the perspective of it and kind of, Joe, how you described its project in revealing what we would now call toxic masculinity <laughs> um, yes. and the sort of network that it has through our through our society. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, did you know that the that Homer's Odyssey has been retranslated in the last couple of years by a woman for the first time? Yes. Yes, it's amazing. Yes, I've read the I've, I've read it. You have? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's a it's a different odyssey. It is. It's a different odyssey. I shouldn't be talking about it because I haven't read it yet. I just know that it happened and it's a it's a completely different experience and kind of changes changes the whole idea of femininity within within the work. Mm-hmm. Um it just reminded me of that. Voices from the bitter core.
it's a big book. <laughs> we actually had to uh, increase the size of the format because the lines were so long and we were having to cut the lines every time. So we increased the format of the book. That's awesome. And it's just, it's just a tremendous book. And I think it's one that, you know, of course resonates through today very much. Yeah. Women in Clothes is a very different, more introspective type book by Bridget Cronauer. It's a set of 26 short stories, 25 of them center around a character named Rita. And Rita is defined through, with, and by her clothing because that's what defines us as a culture. It's what we wear. It's what we cover ourselves with. It's what we disguise ourselves with. And all kinds of things like that. And so through these 25 stories, which actually make up a novel, the character of Rita is taken from birth through death through the afterlife. Wow. And then there's a very mysterious 26th story, which uh, I don't really understand. <laughs> but uh, Bridget Cronauer <laughs> is a... Uh, difficult writer but she these stories are wonderful but the the purpose of what's going on is difficult but you know she won the uh george buchner prize and some other huge prizes in germany and she has not been translated into english except for this book women in clothes you know it's just an amazing set i was so excited when i read this book and was brought the text by the translator it's just something again that can be read over and over again because it's a piece that dissolves the end of it dissolves back into the beginning in a very very magical way so i i highly recommend it in germany it's it they do have a sense of humor because this is a funny book yeah so those are my two the germans from the host publications list Awesome. Thank you, Joe. I'm, I'm excited to dive a little deeper into those later on. Joe, you're such a good podcast guest. <laughs> Joe's not a guest. <laughs> We're the guests today. So what are you reading, Nar? Besides Claire's book of Yoko Tawada, what's on your nightstand? <laughs> um, my nightstand is so... By nightstand, I mean vanity, let's be honest, um, <laughs> which is right next to my bed, which extremely vain. And my stack of books is just so out of control that I recently had to put away half of my makeup to make <laughs> room for my books, which I feel really I love your of. priorities there. Yeah. But um, the emissary is right there looking at me every day. It wants you to read it. Yeah. I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that this week. Um, well, I had vertigo all last month, so I've just been reading briefly. It's almost like taking sips of water. Um, poems are really great for that. Short poems, no epics for me right now. <laughs> but I accidentally didn't realize that I had selected two Uruguayan poets for today. And so when I did my research... I was really excited to to discover that. Um, so I'm going to be talking a little bit about Ida Vital, who is a host 88 poet. Yes, she is. And Marosa de Giorgio, who I have thought was Italian 
<laughs> but is definitely Spanish. Um, but she speaks, or I guess she writes, in such a rich vocabulary that it feels very foreign to me, um, despite being a native Spanish speaker. It's really unique and really just rich and luscious and gorgeous. And so I reread the poems in Spanish a few days ago, and it's just like, this is definitely Spanish, and I'm definitely an intermediate Spanish speaker. <laughs> but yeah, who do you guys want to hear about first? Let's hear about Ida Vital. Yes. Yeah. So, Joe, if you have any anecdotes yes. about putting reason enough out, um, I would love to hear them. This was kind of like a selfish request. Ida Vital was married to Enrique Fierro, uh, who was a professor at the University of Texas and an Uruguayan poet. And I got to know her through him, whose poetry I had published, you know, host publications had published. And her poetry was so soft, yet with a intellectual razor edge that I just fell in love with it. And she is just one of the most amazing people. Her English is very poor. She always asks me if I speak French. And no, I do not. And no, I do not speak Spanish. And so we just look at each other and smile and have a wonderful time. <laughs> and she was very happy to have her slim book published by uh, Host Publications. And we were ecstatic to uh, publish it. And she is in her 90s now. And I think... Uh, She's living in Spain and has won the Cervantes Prize, which is the biggest prize that uh, the Spanish literary scene gives out. And she's won numerous other prizes just recently for her work she's done since the 1940s and 1950s. And she's just an incredibly strong personality. Wonderful, wonderful person. When did you meet her in person? Did she used to live in Austin or did she come visit? She lived in Austin when uh, Enrique Fierro was a professor at the university. And okay. he passed away in 2016 or 2017, I believe. And uh, they would spend half of the year in Austin and half of the year in Mexico or Uruguay. Wow. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, Joe. Just like a quick bio, Joe hit a lot of really good points just now. Um, but Ida Vital was born in Montevideo, Uruguay, in 1923. So that puts her at 96 years old. Her writing received early recognition from the Spanish Nobel laureate Juan Ramón Jiménez, and she played a prominent role and is the last living member of the groundbreaking generation of 1945, um, which was an influential group in Uruguay that was like a collective of artists, writers, and intellectuals. Mm, I love hearing about little collectives of artists. Yeah. We should start one. This was pre-internet, um, where you could have actual movements. This is pre-TV. <laughs> this is pre-us by a long shot. <laughs> long shot, even me. Uh, when the military junta seized power in 1973, Vital was forced to seek political asylum in Mexico City. She remained there for 
a little over a decade um, before she moved to Austin. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if she still lives here. It's kind of hard to <laughs> research without going into a creepy territory. But yeah, and in 2018, I remember we celebrated as a team mm-hmm. that she won the Miguel de Cervantes Prize, which is really exciting. But yeah, Reason Enough is a slim book. It is bilingual. Left side is in Spanish and the right side is translated by Sarah Pollock. Um, And then I have a poem I can read to y'all if you'd like to hear it. Yes, please. Rhetoric of Yes. The order descended from the dagger. No more doubts. Let's cut down from the tree the questions of inanimate body. No more whens or nevers. The plunder is offered in benefit of the future poet. Between blood, fear, and their moral inventions, in the century of insane blindness, against bonfires that a cold, wine-colored wind reconstructs, strong steps are exacted, positive and bejeweled words, with a sum of excluded doubts, what a ghostly cypress crown they guarantee. Oh, I love that. So beautiful. That's one of my favorite poems from that book. Yeah. That ghostly crown at the end. And I love how the rhetoric of yes or this kind of positivity is a sum of doubt. I, I love that it's it's like collecting all of the negativity and doubt and, and um, fashioning like a daisy crown out of it. Yeah, I, I, I feel like that's, it's like my pump up poem. Um, yeah. Motivation. <laughs> totally. Without it being like live, laugh, love and hanging it in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. And then on an opposite side of this coin of Uruguay, not entirely opposite, but different, um, which I also found exciting was where Ida Vital was born. Marosa de Giorgio died. Wow. So I found that to be very interesting. Montevideo? Mm-hmm. They've got like a little cosmic connection there. I know. I love it. And a little bit of what I've read about where Marosa de Giorgio was born, which was in Salto, Uruguay, is that Uruguayans find Salto to be like a mystical, magical town. It's not quite countryside and it's not quite urban. So there's, with that in mind... We can already start to imagine what Marosa de Giorgio's work feels like. Mm. Um, so a little bit about Marosa de Giorgio. She's born in Salto and raised on her family's farm and is one of the most prominent Uruguayan poets of the 20th century. And while some critics have categorized her as a surrealist, she herself has denied membership in any literary movement or school. Although she is relatively unknown outside of the Southern Cone during her lifetime, she is now becoming more widely read through Europe and Latin America. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of her. You're going to recognize this book cover. Oh. <laughs> oh, I remember Nightfall. I've seen that book around. Yeah, that's a, that's a Malvern book. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was a store favorite for a while. Mm-hmm. It's a Malvern book. I have purchased it twice from Malvern. Um, I loved it so much that I lent it to someone and I was impatient to receive it back. So I bought it again. And Stephanie Gehring, who is a host author and a former bookseller at Malvern, 
put this book in my hands because she knows how much I love cinema and screenwriting and cinematic writing. And this collection very much has this like cinematic but dreamy feel to it. Mm. So I Remember Nightfall is actually a collection of four books by DiGiorgio put together in one book. And it features work from the 1960s and 1970s. Um, And I would describe this collection as primarily narrative prose poetry um, that has like a lot of luscious language, hence why I did not understand it in Spanish. Um, And it paints like a cinematic and surreal world. But there's also like an element of nostalgia and childlikeness to these poems. They're very intelligent and imaginative observations, but also like really tender. And it's been a really good quarantine read, especially because of this like nostalgic reminiscing quality to it, mm-hmm. where it feels like, okay, I'm sure the two of you have done this where you're like, ah, oh, remember in February when I didn't wear a mask and like, had dinner in public <laughs> all the time all the time but even just like simple things i'm like remember when i wore red lipstick <laughs> remember when i wore shoes um so i've really enjoyed this because it feels like a little bit like a diary um so i'll read you guys i love just starting at the very first poem when i share work because it's what hooks me in for mm. the first time mm-hmm So this is from the first collection, which is The History of Violets. This is the first piece. I remember nightfall and your room's open door, the door through which neighbors and angels came in, and the clouds, November evening clouds, drifting in circles over the land. The little trees burdened with jasmine, with doves and droplets of water, that joyous peeling, that endless chirping, every evening the same. And then the next morning, with its tiny dead angels strewn everywhere like paper birds, or the most exquisite of eggshells, your dazzling death. Wow. That is so beautiful. Wow. Dazzling death. Yeah. This just feels, it just feels so perfect for our era, where it's like, Sometimes things just feel so unreal. She kind of takes us there into that space. I love the eggshells as the remnants of the past. It's so tender and so sad. That is. You chose a bird poem. Of course I did. (laughs) There's there's so much nature, but like backyard nature. Um, Nature that is accessible to all if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. Gardens and homely creatures. It's so good. Um, it's been so nice to read. I love it. Another book that I want. That's one I've been tempted with. This is all just for me to get reading recommendations from you guys. <laughs> yeah. That's all Whit Month is. Um, your reading list just grows, which is awesome. Yeah. Claire, what did you bring for us today? So I did mention Yoko Tawada, but... That wasn't who I intended to talk about. Um, Highly recommend, but I have been slowly going through a Host 88 title 
called Amber's Aglow, and it is an anthology of contemporary Polish women's poetry, edited and translated by Regina Grohl, which I find, as I work through this, fascinating that it is one translator for this whole anthology. Um, it's, it's no small feat. And also because it's the most expansive anthology of its kind, featuring the work of 30 of Poland's most influential and talented female poets. So 30 different poets' work to translate must have been a crazy time. Yes. And I think there was a bit of a shift in, in Polish poetry after the fall of the communist regime in the 1980s. And so like Polish poetry's traditional subjects like witness and protest kind of vanished. And the contemporary poets of Poland confront subject matter like the dailiness of life and the return to the self as a subject instead of like externalizing poetic content, you know, towards what's happening in the world. Um, all of it just to say, this is such a varied and diverse book. There's so many different voices in here, uh, lots of different styles and poets who had and have very different types of careers. So some of these poets are not well known at all, really hard to find in English, um, which is, again, such a gift. And then we, of course, have our Nobel Prize winner. Joe, can you help me how to pronounce the name? Wisława Szymborska. Wisława Szymborska. Yes. Okay. So that's the most well-known poet, I would say, in this collection. Yes, absolutely. One of the, one of the amazing things, if I could chime in about Please. this about this book is that some of these poems, at least when the book was published, had not even been published outside of journals in Poland. They did not have books of their own. Wow. Uh, they may have found them since then, but when the book was published, uh, a lot of these poets, you know, they were just in journals. Um, and when you we're putting this anthology together, Joe. I assume you were mostly just working with the translator. Translator did it all. Yeah. Translator did everything. She, you know, she's Polish and she mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in Poland gathering these poems together and meeting these poets and putting together this anthology. And we had done two earlier books of her translations of separate Polish poets, Ursula Kojo and uh, Anna Freilich. And uh, she decided to let us publish this book, which is one of my proudest books of the Host 88 collection. I can see why. It is so good. Um, I wanted to read a poem that, you know, I miss my mom. Uh, and this poem reminded me of her. And I also just really like it. It's not the kind of poem I usually choose to read. So the poet's name is Adriana Zimanska. And this poem is titled, my daughter and Franz Kafka. My daughter yells, I don't believe in this God. I don't believe in any God. And she escapes into crying over Kafka's castle. My daughter is 18 and amazes me with her consummate femininity. But when she waves her noisy disbelief before my eyes like a scarlet scarf, she is still a little girl sucking on her thumb. What can I tell her, God? that she is mistaken, that you do exist, distant and not too quick, and maybe close and merciful, that this whole wonderful world between her and you is merely a brittle piece of opaque glass. For she believes in Kafka as she wanders in the evenings through the labyrinths of his imagination. 
I think that before falling asleep, she secretly talks to Kay, prompting to him ways to arrive at truth. So I say nothing. I just look into her tearful eyes like into the interior of an aquarium filled with green light. My little grown-up daughter dances in the morning in a mini dress, and smiling Kafka looks at her from the bookshelf, and suddenly he speaks to her in this charming, deep basso. You know, we must look into it. I'm almost certain that he exists, behind the last door of the mirror. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. I really loved that poem so much. Um, it just spoke to me today. It, it it resonates a lot. It's a very personal poem, very personal relationship with the divine, mother and a daughter, and, you know, mother trying to understand a daughter. Yeah. It's wonderful, wonderful. And it's funny. It's so funny. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. There's a There's an air of humor there. So will you read it to us in Polish now? <laughs> um, I would, but, you know, I think we're running out of time. That's my plug for it being bilingual. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is a bilingual collection. I just wanted to say, I really love that you chose a mother-daughter poem um, because so many of the women writers that we love and so many of the translated writers, especially ones of um, eras in the past, write about being a mother. Um, I mean, I know it's a very contemporary and a forever theme, as long as women bear children or make their own families. But yeah, I feel like that was an important poem for our theme today. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. Thanks very much. What else did you bring for us? Okay, so as you know, Anar and Joe, welcome to the party. <laughs> I love Chika Sagawa. Yes. This is one of my all-time favorite poets I discovered a couple of years ago. So, yeah, this is just such a, to me, an invaluable piece of translated women's literature because it is a poet who could have so easily been lost to time. She was born in Japan in 1911 in a really small town and she died at age 24 mm. she developed stomach cancer in 1935 and died in um, 1936 so she had a very brief time on this earth and being such a young writer and being a woman at that time um, wouldn't have been easy anywhere but she kind of found her foothold in a literary community through um, her brother, who was also a writer. And though she developed that relationship to, to a literary community through him, she's known for having a very specific and unique voice, one that was not typical of the group that she was in necessarily. She was kind of in with Japanese modernists at the time. So yeah, I really like her work because uh, it's got a surrealist influence and its imagery is so affecting to me. Um, she was also a translator, by the way. Some of her first published pieces were translations that she did into Japanese. Anyway, the poems are very short and I'm going to read just one to you, titled Circulation. A fence dirtied by dust continues. Leaves turn from red to yellow. Recollections accumulate upon the path of memory. As if spreading white linen. Seasons have four keys. 
slide down the stairs. The entrance is shut again. The blue tree is hollow. When hit, it sounds. While the night sneaks out. That day, I am as sad as the skin of the boy in the sky. Eternity cuts between us. I lose countless images to that other side. Wow. Wow. My God. I love hearing you read and talk about Chikasegawa. Can you read, can you read the egg one for us? Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) I have it bookmarked. Um, This is a very short poem. It's five lines long and it's titled Flower. Dreams are severed fruit. Auburn pears have fallen in the field. Parsley blooms on the plate. Sometimes the leghorn appears to have six toes. I crack an egg and the moon comes out. I love that poem so much. Um, Do not sleep on Chika Sagawa is what Claire is trying to tell all of us. I, I think it speaks partially to her youth. She was so young when she was writing these. I think she started writing them when she was like 17. Um, they just make these proclamations very boldly and without any hesitance uh, or explanation. Like, I crack an egg and the moon comes out. I take that exactly as it is. I believe it. Um, I think Chica's work just has that kind of power, which makes it so successful as, as avant-garde poetry. Um, mm-hmm. And she's very tender. And it's so sad that, that the world lost her at age 24. But those are my, those are my picks for Women in Translation Month. Well, thank you so much. Thank That's you. awesome. Those are, those are awesome. All four books. I mean, my goodness. Well, six books, Joe. Six books. Mine too. Well, I have to say that if anyone is looking for a reading list this month or just a list to get started on, we will be compiling the books we talked about today and sharing those on our social media and in the description of the podcast. So definitely check them out. And any of the Host 88 titles uh, would be available on our website at hostpublications.com. Let's keep reading Women in Translation. All year, all year long. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) The host 88 titles we discussed in this episode are... Voices from the Bitter Core by Ursula Kretschel, translated by Amy Keppel Strasser. Women and Clothes by Bridget Kronauer, translated by Yuta Itner. Reason Enough by Ida Vital, translated by Sarah Pollock. And Amber's Aglow, an anthology of contemporary Polish women's poetry, translated by Regina Grohl. These titles can be found on our website, hostpublications.com. We also discussed... I Remember Nightfall by Marosa de Giorgio, translated by Janine Pitas, and The Collected Poems of Chika Sagawa, translated by Sawako Nakayasu. We recommend shopping these titles on bookshop.org, where a portion of all sales goes to supporting small, locally owned bookstores across the nation. 